0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. O gracious and glorious Father, we pray that you would help us to be able to turn our eyes from looking at things that are worthless, that moth and rust destroy, things that are temporal, And help us shift our gaze onward and upward to the things which are eternal. That you would give us life in your ways. That you would confirm to us your very promises which you have laid out. That you may be feared and honored. That we would tremble in honor and awe and reverence. Turn away the reproach that we dread. Help us to be able to turn to your rules which are good. Help us, Lord, as we long for your precepts. In your righteousness, we pray that you would give us life through Christ Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Hear now the word, Lord, from Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 12. This is God's holy, inerrant, life giving word. Please take heed how you hear. Then Moses and the people of Israel, saying, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You sent out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap, and the deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, and my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand. Imagine, if you will, an image of a a bustling city, streets filled with people as they walk in their ways, each to their appointments that they have, engrossed in their own world as they navigate through this jungle among the throngs of these pedestrians. You notice a, a particular man sitting on a bench. This young man grasping at something with his hand, dazzling white screen. He seems absorbed by this screen. As you draw closer, it's not merely that he's on his phone doing these various tasks that many people do, looking through social media, checking emails, but yet he He's interacting with something. An app, you find out that he he's, is entitled his, his pocket God. And he, and he goes to this pocket God to be able to seek, to be able to understand the world in which he lives. Ask big questions, fix big problems. To, to give him comfort in times of need. He's developed this app himself, so he can go in and change it when he wills. When it doesn't give the answer that he wants, he can go in and, and change what he sees, what he understands, how it interacts with him. As you think about this, you, you cannot begin to ponder the absurdity of such a situation. How could you take God and shrink him down into a phone to make the divine an app that's customizable, changeable, to be able to fit in your hand, to put in your pocket. Now this pocket God might make this man feel comfortable. It might give him answers that he wants to hear. It gives him convenience. It gives him control. But It pales in comparison. To the God in which we read about in the Bible, one that we do not come and approach and say, what do we want this God to look like, and how do we want this God to act, and what, do, what, what response? The God of the Bible, which is glorious, be it boundless majesty and power, the true God that we read about in the Scripture." And in a world where people seek to be able to do this with their minds and their actions and to be able to design their own God, which is instant gratification, easy solutions. And what often happens is we create gods in our own image. Gods that cater to our desires, conform to our expectations. Colin Hansen once put that often what the gods, the, what we design are like cosmic vending machines or cosmic butlers that come at our beck and call to be able to seek to be able to serve us rather than us serving them. Yet the God of the universe, the God that is found, discovered in the Bible, does not fit into any of these categories. He cannot be confined on a screen or constrained by human limitations or shaped from wood, gold, or silver. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the Creator of all things. The glory transcends and confines space and time. And we're about to seek not to be able to dive into some app of code that some person has invented or designed but to understand God as he has revealed himself to us through Scripture. Particularly in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Stephen Charnock, a Puritan from the 17th century, said about Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, this verse is one of the most loftiest descriptions of the majesty and excellency of God in the whole Scripture loftiest descriptions of majesty and excellency of God in all of Scripture. And what we're seeking to be able to try and do is, like children with a magnifying glass, trying to go out into the whole world and discover all of the universe has to offer. To be able to try and understand this loftiest description in such a manner. Yet we're not alone. We've been given not just this verse, but all of God's Word. Not just his word, but his spirit, to be able to help us to be able to understand it. That he teaches us and instructs us about who God is and what as we as his creatures are to do to be able to serve him. And as the, the grand, glorious people who have been saved, the people of God, singing praises to God after you defeated the enemy of the east side of the Red Sea, saved from slavery, What can we learn about God in this one verse? And do we have that same grasp that they had as they sang this song of praise towards him? Or do we often worship a God we have invented, a pocket God who fits our needs and serves us? The first thing that we see in this passage is God is incomparable. God is incomparable. Twice in this passage we encountered this rhetorical question, who is like you? This question is is plain in the the answer that there is no one. A simple question holds profound insights into how we understand God. The, The opening passage of Scripture begins in Genesis 1 verse 1 is, in the beginning God There is no one else there, just the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit from all eternity past to all eternity future. It is only then that in the beginning God created. There's a great distinction and a great gap between those first few words. Not in some theistic deity evolution, theistic evolution, Sense that there's a big gap there. There's a big gap because from this moment point is all eternity past. There was not a time, and yet there now is a time in the beginning. And this foundational truth is now we see a great distinction that pales, read all through the lens of all of what we see in this world. There's a difference between the creator in the beginning God created and thus which is created. That God is the creator and we are his creatures, his creation. This distinction separates God from all other things, visible and invisible. This is often referred to as the solidarity of God. That here, there's uniqueness that is often associated with individuals. That every person is a snowflake. There's no one like you. Now, every person has their own DNA, their own fingerprints. But it doesn't take long for the similarities to be able to overlap. Father and a son, a mother and a daughter. That even in, us, in our, our room today, we have many forms of DNA, but all of us share the same structure of the DNA in which we have. Thus making us one kind. But yet, nothing. And none of this applies to God. Their similarities exist within these categories of creation, There is nothing that compares to God. Who is like you, Moses writes as the people sing, affirming that there is no one like God. This theme reoccurs throughout Exodus, particularly in the signs and wonders in chapters 8 and 9, demonstrating there is no one like God. More specifically, it's not merely that there is a God that is unique. But specifically, there is a specific God who exists. Not just a deity that forms somewhere and somewhere, but this God has a name. The proper name, Lord, all capitals in your Bible, commonly referred to as Yahweh. The God who introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. Who shall I said, send me? Tell him I am who I am. I Am has sent me, the God who made the covenant with Abraham. And there is no God like this God, Yahweh. And although we see that humanity is made in the image of God, it's not that then we are God ourselves. This is the very temptation which was given to Adam and Eve. For God knows when you eat of the the tree of the good and evil, you will become like him. They were already made in his image. As the Westminster Short of Catechism puts it. They're made in his image and in knowledge and holiness and righteousness. But yet they're not God. That they reflect God's image. Adam and Eve are not God. Man is not God. God, he's made a little lower than the angels, and yet God still cares for him, puts a crown upon him. But there is none like God. God is incomparable. God is creator. No one else can hold that title. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. No one else can claim these attributes. And even as we think about God and, and how we are to describe him, Often words are hard for us to come by because we only know what is temporal, what is before us. So we have to try and understand them in opposites. That God is eternal, everlasting, infinite. He's not finite, he's infinite. He's not changeable, he's unchangeable. And we must understand that there's a great downside and downfall that happened since Adam and Eve are in the garden. It is what is called the great exchange. that The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, and in this exchange, all of mankind has exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That his creation then worship and serves the creature Worship which was due to the Creator is now worshipped that which is created. And, And Paul describes this Creator who is blessed forever. And this great down exchange and great downfall of His creation, specifically found in mankind. That mankind, specifically all creation, is made to be able to worship the One who created them. Creation was to bow down and adore the Creator. Yet as creations, we bow down to which is created. Not giving glory to the one who created all things for his glory, but bowing down to mere wood and things. Isaiah often will, will mention how foolish we are in our hearts that, that here someone will go down, cut down half a tree cut down a tree, half of it he will shape into an idol, bow down and worship it, give sacrifices. The other half he will burn and eat, cook his food on. And he said, what happens if you got it the wrong way around and you shape the wrong end? But this is the foolishness of our hearts. We all do this. We all worship that which is created rather than the creator. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is one of the great temptations which happens not only in Adam and Eve in the garden, but also uh, Jesus as he is about. He's in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. After fasting for a time, being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan tempts him and says, Bow down to me. Bow down to me, a a creature who's created. Jesus' response was not like that of Adam and Eve in the garden, not like us in our lives. But Jesus responded by saying, you shall worship the Lord your God. To Him only you shall serve. And even in in this verse here, it's not merely that there's no one like God, that He is the God, the Creator. But there's no one like God in any other gods. Plural, lowercase g. That there's, there's no... Comparison between the God of the Bible, the God Yahweh, to the gods which exist in this world. Throughout Exodus, again, we've we've pointed out that here is not merely that God is showing victory over Pharaoh, not only his victory over his army, but also the, the gods of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians had many gods all found in creation. They would worship the sun god for providing them light. They would worship Hopi, the god of the Nile, who gave fertility and life to their land. They would worship gods of war who would save them and defend them. And yet, what they're doing is they are worship creation. They see creation, and instead of giving glory to God who brought forth the life where all life proceeds from God the Father, they give glory to a river. Instead of the God who made the sun, who caused it to be able to rule over the sky, and to be able to worship the creator of the sun, they worship the sun. And so too is a great defeat of the Egyptian gods, and there is no God like the God of the Bible. Even in our lives, we must be cautious to be able to see that there is none like God. That we serve God and Him alone. That God deserves the glory and honor and praise. And we are quick to be able to exchange the truth about God for a lie. We give thanks and praise to the gifts that God bestows upon us and not the giver of the gifts. We're quick to be able to worship that is, which is created rather than the Creator. We worship those blessings which God gives us and elevate them, placing them amongst the gods. But we must remember there is none like God. The second thing that we see in this passage is God is holy. Now if we can't grasp the concept of the solidarity of God, God is incomparable, then it's hard for us to then be able to understand how he is unique. Specifically in this phrase here, that God is holy. Now this attribute stands out amongst many other attributes, mainly because in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 3, it's the only attribute that is mentioned three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The emphasis is is on God's holiness, significance as he calls in our reflection. In his book, The Holiness of God, where R.C. Sproul seeks to be able to unpack this idea. He helps us understand the nature of our response to God's holiness. As he writes, we must tremble before our God. He is still holy. Our trembling is not a tremor, is a tremor of awe and veneration, not of Trembling of a coward or a pagan frightened by the rustling of a leaf. Luther explained it this way. We are to fear God, not with a severe fear like that of a prisoner before the tremor, tormentor, but as the child, but as a child who do not wish to displease their beloved father. That here the holiness of God is, is what is in mind as they cry out, Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. And the message of the gospel does not diminish this holiness of God. Rather, it heightens our awareness of it. It also provides a way through Christ for us to approach God's presence with thanksgiving. As God cannot be divided or dissected into parts like we can, we may lose an arm or a leg, but we're still ourselves. But we cannot remove an attribute from God. For that is the very essence of who God is. His nature is known as the simplicity of God. And when we engage in worship, we behold God in all of His splendor and majesty. We should respond in the same awe and reverence that the countless witnesses throughout all of history have displayed. Our approach to God remains the same. We approach Him by faith. And we should never assume that God is less holy in the New Testament than He is in the Old. We come before Him with deep irreverence and awe because who He is, He does not change. But we implore Him to change us. To enable us to be able to grasp His holiness and our sinfulness and for Him then to make Him holy as He is Holy. the declaration by the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 still rings true today. It is we who change, not God. This is the critical point as we begin to understand God saving His people, that they might be able to serve Him specifically. As they become holy like Him, as the law seeks to be able to separate the people of God from the people of the world, but through the work of Christ Jesus, we as his saints are called to be holy as he is holy. As this attribute is often overlooked and understood, Jonathan Edwards explains that this, the holiness of God is really the ABCs of loving him. This is the very beginning of where we begin to grasp how we are to love him. Jonathan Edwards says, A true love to God must begin with a delight in his holiness, and not with a delight in any other attribute. For no other attribute is truly lovely without this. And no otherwise than, as according to our way of conceiving God, it derives its loveliness from this not only God is unique, but he is holy. The third thing that we see here is God is awesome. You see this here, awesome in glorious deeds. We don't understand the concept of holiness. Again, we're going to struggle to be able to comprehend the word awesome. A word often misunderstood in our current culture to describe something good or maybe just something a a step above good. However, awesome is something which should evoke a sense of awe and wonder. Sometimes even in the King James Version, to translate this word as terrible. is in Psalm 47, verse 2, which describes God, the Lord, the Most High, is terrible. He is great. He is the great king over all the earth. Here again, that sense of terrible is used to be able to convey that sense of fear and awe. Speaks of this sense of wonder and astonishment. And when we say God is awesome, we truly mean that He is filled with awe. Filled with awe and wonder as we seek to be able to approach Him. That we fully grasp and understand that He is the incomparable Creator the God who is holy and perfect, and we as his creatures feel our finiteness and our sinfulness, standing in awe and wonder of him who has done these great and astonishing deeds. As we reflect on this passage in Exodus chapter 15, we contemplate what God has done to be able to bring his people to this point. Not only saving them from Slavery, but delivering them from Pharaoh and his army by parting the Red Sea, walking over it, then bringing the Red Sea to crush over them to be able to defeat their enemies. God, the awesome, wonder-working God who delivered and saved them, who cast the horse and the rider into the sea, who has become the people's salvation, their God in which they praise and exalt. The Lord, the man of war, the Lord is his name. And there should be a sense, of, a great sense of awe and wonder when God's people be gathered together to be able to worship Him, the living and triune God. One key aspect that often forgotten in this world, that we often seek to be able to, to bring God into to a size in which we can understand and comprehend. But there's a sense in worship, we worship what we do not know. We worship the grand, glorious, majestic, excellent God. The God that we cannot make into an app. A God that we cannot code into or solve all of our problems. The God of the Bible. That there is no God like the God. That He is unique and He is holy. And as we, God's people, approach Him to worship Him, we do so with reverence and awe. For God is an all-consuming fire, as the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 12. And when we gather together, we do not merely worship a God just thinking He dwells in this space. For God cannot dwell in a a temple made with human hands. We worship a God far greater than all of this space. We worship the God who made the heavens and the earth, who placed the stars in the sky and named each of them, who filled the oceans and the skies with life, who placed man and creature on dry ground, who causes the sun to rise, who causes it to set, who created all things by the word of his power, who rules over all things through the works of his providence, the God who is all-knowing, ever-present, sovereign, almighty, glorious, holy, and true. We worship this God. And there should be a great sense of awe and wonder as we approach Him and we sing praises to Him. We should enter into this place with a great sense of weight on our shoulders, not of sin and shame, but of the glorious God in which we worship. We're not worshiping a tree We're not worshipping anything that is in creation. We are worshipping the God who is highly exalted over all creation. And there should be a sense of awe and wonders as we enter into his courts with thanksgiving and praise. We worship an awesome God. We worship an awful God. A God who is filled with all awe. as we read through the Old Testament, that God is the God that we still worship. He has not changed. The Old Testament used a word to be able to describe God's glory as kabod. Kabod is also used to be able to, a sense of heaviness. This is how we are to worship Him. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 33, let the earth fear the Lord and all the inhabitants of the world world stand in awe of Him. And In the New Testament, nothing has changed. We still worship the same living and true God. We come through the mediation of Christ Jesus, no longer in, in, in a type or a shadow, but still through the same doorway of faith. That even as I mentioned before, the New Testament author in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12 says that we should worship God in acceptable worship, which is pleasing to him, with awe and reverence, for he is an all consuming fire. Finally, what we see is God is doing wonders. See that at the very end, who is like God doing wonders. Interestingly, the people proclaim that he is doing wonders, not that he has done great wonders. course you look back at the story of exodus you've seen how many great wonders that signs and wonders that they have done he has done as recently as crushing pharaoh and his army in the red sea and yet here the people could proclaim that he is still doing wonders the same concept is is found in psalm 77 where in verse 11 the psalmist explains that Here he remembers the wonders that God has done, but in verse 14 he declares that God is a God who works wonders. God's wonders are not limited merely to the past, but he is currently performing these extraordinary deeds. While we might not see these great glorious external signs and wonders through these miraculous signs as we saw in the book of Exodus, God is still working. This word speaks of miracles, extraordinary things often used in the Old Testament to describe only what God does or He's about to do. And what is remarkable about this is this is the exact same word that is used of Christ Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 9, when Isaiah speaks of the one to come, and he names, gives these titles to the one to come, one of the titles that he gives Isaiah says that Christ is the wonderful counselor, the one who does these wonderful things in counsels. Here we see the second person of the Trinity filled with this wonder doing wonderful things, primarily through his word he 's a wonderful doing wonder through the word in which he speaks, as the author of Hebrews begins in God spoke through Prophets in various ways, but, not, but now he has spoken through his Son. And we see this wonderful Counselor, the one who does these great and wonderful things. There is none like Christ, the God-man, the second person in the Trinity. He, has, he stepped into creation, the one who was there in the very beginning, who created all things out of nothing. He is the one who came down and stepped into creation, becoming like us so that he might take our punishment from us. He's sinless, conceived by the Holy Spirit, sharing the very nature of God himself. The Christ is the one who is holy. As the disciples cry out, You are the Holy One of Israel. We're doing great and glorious wonders. That they're filled with awe. As they're terrified in the boat as the storm surrounds them, and yet when Christ calms the storms, they're not worried about the storm that has gone and has passed. They're terrified of the man who stands before them, who is doing these great and glorious signs and wonders. And we worship through this God-man. He is our mediator, the one in which we approach this glorious God, that he has made a way for us to be able to come and sing like the people of God did in Exodus chapter 15. That we worship this amazing God. Not a pocket-filled God that we wanted to be able to develop or change or understand by picking and choosing what scriptures we want to put in to be able to have the output we want to get out of it we worship a god that we cannot never fully grasp and comprehend and this is a glorious truth let's go to lord in prayer let's pray a gracious and most merciful father we give you thanks and praise that you are the one who is from everlasting to everlasting lord that there is none like you Lord, that you are the one who is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Lord, we worship the same God that we read about in Exodus chapter 15. And what a a lofty description it is of you in one verse that we could only begin to reach the surface. Help us, Lord, to be able to fully grasp and understand this as we serve you with our whole heart, mind, and strength. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.